we are way more reliable now than we ever have been. Welcome to a very special episode 11 of Unrelenting. Gene is traveling due to his day job, and we figured this would be a perfect chance to bring you an interview that we did with a dude named Ben, named Ben, who works in the power industry, has firsthand knowledge of what happened last winter in Austin, and had a lot of relevations about how the business works and how things may change going forward. So with that said, let's get right into this interview. We hope you enjoy it. Darren, today I've got somebody that uh, has gotten to be a friend of mine that's also a fan of No Agenda that I think would be fun for us to interview. And uh, one of the coolest things about him is he is an actual dude named Ben. But is he grumpy? Well, (laughs) have you ever met a Ben who's not grumpy? Rarely, very rarely. Rarely. So, Ben, your name is actually Ben. It is. And and you work with computers, do you? I do. Wow. A very so specific you, kind of computer. Are you the guy that uh, they were talking about right. in Congress that started the whole dude named Ben meme? I, I was not. Okay. I was not. But, but I definitely have, jumped on that bandwagon pretty early. Yeah, it worked pretty good. Now, have you ever spoken in front of Congress? I have not. Okay. Just Some of my check. bosses have. Uh-huh. We do have a lie detector hookup to you, Ben, so any questions you answer uh, will be verified as whether they're true or not by the fact checkers sitting here just to my left. That's fine by me. All right. And as you know, fact checkers are really just people that provide opinions, as has been admitted to by Facebook. So uh, with that in mind, um, you know, the way I met Ben, Darren, is uh, last year when Texas had its big freeze and, and consequent big loss of power. And Ben is somebody that had insight into the power industry as well as uh, having a security background. And uh, as we got to know each other, found some things in common from my past that he's certainly still actively involved in. And I think it'd be fun to kind of get his take on what's going on with Texas power right now. But also, since there's more security issues in the news today, uh, maybe we could chat about that as well. Well, yeah, we sure. heard pipelines getting malware or the ransomware and all that kind of stuff because everything's hooked up to the Internet, which maybe seems like a bad idea. But looking back at what happened in Texas in February, I think the hundred thousand dollar question is, if that kind of weather hit today, would anything be different? Uh, short answer is no. Uh, you don't solve a 20-year problem that you created in a single year. You don't build new power plants in a single year. And the fundamental issue that Texas faced was a lack of generation and specifically diverse generation. Like too much diversion or diversity. No, actually, we're still pretty heavy on, for instance, natural gas. We don't have as many coal plants as we had previously. Mm-hmm. And then you take into com- combination uh, a lot of the dependence we have in Texas on wind and solar and some obvious issues there. And Bob's your uncle. You have a, a recipe for disaster. And then you had the natural gas curtailments that happened for a variety of reasons that we can get into. And yeah, 
we we had power plants that uh, tripped off not due to winterization issues, but because natural gas was not available to run them. Hmm, interesting. Now, if if we just had nothing but nuclear plants, this whole thing could have been avoided, couldn't it? Yeah, largely. Uh, you know, assuming you have those plants winterized correctly, you know, uh, Texas, uh, the Texas project down south, uh, they had a unit scram due, due to a level transmitter freezing up, but that was an operator action. It was not an automatic scram. So That's operator. Scram? <laughs> uh, it, it, it is where you shut down a nuclear power plant rather abruptly. So you're dropping uh, control rods, stopping the reaction. Uh, yeah. It's one of those things you practice for. Yeah, it's one of those things that the operators are drilled in, especially since Three Mile and, and everything else, that y- you uh, exercise extreme caution and you, you know, a radiological release is not an acceptable condition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, is it true with the winterization aspect of especially what happened in Texas? that the reason that the power plants were not winterized was simply because it didn't make fiscal sense for the companies, meaning the state or the federal government didn't go, hey, we'll pay you to do this. So you're prepared. So it left a power company going, well, you know, the worst thing that happens is maybe we lose power for a few days, but we don't have to pay millions or billions of dollars to make sure it doesn't happen. Is this the case of the government should have given some money for something that they didn't, or was just, just a case of the people that provide the power plants when eh, it's, we're just rolling the dice. So I'm going to go back. Uh, if we had a little time machine sound effect to 2011. So in 2011, Texas had a similar situation where we had rolling blackouts and that was due to a winterization issue at, um, a handful of sites where you had level transmitters and things freezing up and a sudden loss of, you know, several thousand megawatts off the grid, sending us into rolling blackouts. That was for a much shorter period of time. Uh, One of my former CEOs ended up testifying before Congress after that event. And that led to a severe weather program being implemented at every power company in the state of Texas. So ERCOT has some regulations around how winterization has to occur. Now, I want to say something that how you build a power plant is dependent upon your region. So Waco and South, most of the power plants are what I would call open superstructure, right? So they don't have, the power plant is not encased in a closed building. It's actually an open superstructure where the boiler is basically exposed to the elements. And the reason why is because Waco and South, you're dealing with far more heat issues than you are cold issues. So as a result, level transmitters are sticking out of the the boiler, whether it's a combined cycle unit or, you know, uh, a, you know, boiler style gas unit or a coal unit, uh, everything but simple cycle uh, combustion turbines. You've got level transmitters, different things that are exposed to the elements that have a habit of freezing. So the winterization programs that most companies instituted, including one I worked for, include building temporary shelters during the winter time around this, having uh, literally gas-powered heaters in those shelters to keep things from freezing up, extra personnel on site when uh, the temperature drops below 30 degrees, uh, different levels of preparedness and things that happen at various temperature stages. So the idea that 
companies didn't winterize or didn't winterize effectively is kind of nonsensical because you know you've got on a modern power plant hundreds to tens of thousands of points of IO depending on the style of unit and you know um, a modern coal unit for instance will have 80,000 points of IO pretty easily um so that's a lot of sensors and things to track and take care of right and the idea that you can be perfect all the time you know that's just not reality and then you throw in the extremeness of the cold and it's just it's not something that Texas was prepared for and I don't know that the uh, economic argument should be that you should prepare for it. You know, if this truly is a once hundred year event, how do you make an economic case to justify preparing for that? Doesn't it happen every 10 years though? Right. (laughs) (laughs) It sure seems like it. It's the extreme weather comes in and causes that cascading effect. And of course it's going to be used now to push the concept that this is man-made climate change causing these issues. So of course we have to prepare because this is going to start happening every year. And that would be the way to continue to take money out of people's pockets to invest using air quotes into whatever they think would prevent this from happening. But if, but if it is happening every 10 years, almost at this point, then there has to be a better solution, right? Yeah, but l- let's look at the, the case of 2011 versus, you know, uh, 2021. Um, and you look at the market conditions and what happened. So in the state of Texas, before deregulation, and when we say deregulation of Texas power industry, we're talking about generation and retail, not transmission. Okay. Transmission, distribution, still very regulated. The deregulation of retail is not really fully deregulated and the deregulation of generation is not really fully deregulated. So the price per megawatt hour in state of Texas during regulation was around $80 a megawatt on average. That's what the rate case was to the consumer. And today, uh, the average uh, megawatt uh, in the state of Texas is around $20 a megawatt hour, yet the consumer has not seen that same drop in uh, power prices, right? Uh, They've seen some, but not a lot. You have municipalities and co-ops that are exempt from competition. They're functionally monopolies in their area. And then you have the big cities, Dallas, San Antonio, Houston, Austin, that essentially uh, have some choice in retailer, but that's really just a billing issue. Right. So we look at 2011 and the average price uh, per megawatt then was around $60 a megawatt. And we had far more coal units on uh, online. We had what we considered base load available. You had rolling outages for a couple hours. Fast forward to 2021, and you've seen a huge retirement in the coal fleet. Natural gas has increased its dominance in the state of Texas. And you have a couple laws out there that don't make sense in this case. So Texas has a law that says that natural gas companies must prioritize residential heating delivery over industrial clients. So that means even though the majority of Texans heat their home with electricity and not natural gas, Literally, natural gas had to be prefaced to neighborhoods over power plants. So we had natural gas companies literally pulling contracts from uh, from um, power plants and not delivering the gas that they were supposed to. There was a gas shortage. Texas 
stopped exporting gas for the first time in its history. So this caused knock-on power effects in Oklahoma, Louisiana, and Mexico. Yeah, well, uh, not exactly them. broadly reported, but, you know, hey. Hey, as um, long as we have power, that's the important thing. <laughs> yeah, but we didn't. That's the problem. Yeah. The, and then, the, by the way, yeah. who would have thunk it that gas heaters need electricity to spin their fans? Right. Um you know, this really was a perfect storm. Uh, one of the winterization issues that we had was in batteries. So everybody talks about green energy and batteries and batteries being great. Well, the heaters installed in the battery compartments at several utilities were not sufficient to keep the batteries above 32 degrees Fahrenheit. And what that means is you cannot charge or discharge lithium ion below freezing. Otherwise, you destroy the battery. So guess what? Those battery resources were no longer available. Yeah, so you're you, yeah. you're talking about batteries, but I think uh, just to clarify, there you're you're referring to batteries that are where are these batteries located? Are they at the windmill sites? Or are they at West Texas? Uh, all over. Um, I mean the 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 company I was formerly involved with uh, a very large utility that's headquartered in Texas and in multiple states is doing a lot of battery deployments basically because of tax subsidies and things like that uh, all throughout from South Texas to Illinois and Maine and California. In fact, one of the largest battery deployments in the world. Um, So, you know, large utility scale batteries across the nation. And they're using lithium batteries for that? Right now, currently, yeah, lithium. Um, various types of lithium ion have been deployed, uh, different chemistries based off of what's what the development team decided to go with at the time, quite frankly, when they were building a new power plant. So are you saying that like regular power plants, meaning gas and coal, have batteries? It's not just the windmills? Um, yeah, actually, one of the last projects I was involved with was putting a large battery deployment at a combustion turbine site where essentially the combustion turbine would feed the batteries and charge the batteries, giving it an instantaneous ramp rate. So one of the things when you're looking at grid stabilization and energy management systems and talking about, hey, how do you balance the demand that the customer has and the generation and resources available, ramp rate and how fast a power plant can spin up or spin down becomes very important to a grid operator like ERCOT. And by adding large amounts of batteries, industrial batteries at combustion turbines, which are some of the fastest ramping power plants available, we can actually give an instantaneous ramp rate, meaning the batteries come on, start producing power. As the combustion turbine comes online and ramps up to full load, there's a crossover where the batteries start, you know, decreasing their output and the power plants increasing their output. So you have instantaneous on-off capability. And how, how long does that take in a good case scenario without batteries that ramp up? Uh, so it depends if the power plant is warm or cold. If you have a warm start on some combustion turbines to full load can be as fast as 15 minutes, but that is, you're doing a lot of damage to that turbine and shortening the turbine lifespan. If you're talking about a big coal plant, a general warm restart on a large coal facility is a 12 hour restart window. Got it. And why would you ever need to shut these things down? Well, uh, economics is the primary reason. And then you have maintenance and, you know, uh, they're big destructive machines. They 
cause their own destruction, right? So even if you have uh, a combustion turbine, which is nothing but a jet engine, um, if you use, uh, you know, if you push it harder than the metallurgy can really take, you're eventually going to destroy components and have a problem, right? And if you look at something more complex, like uh, a combined cycle, you know, a HERSIC style, and you've got what's called duct burners, right? So additional uh, thermal load that's introduced into the duct when it goes to the steam generator and all that. Um, you're shortening the lifespan of the boiler tubes that are uh, exposed to that additional heat. So by just their very uh, nature, a power plant, regardless of its type, is a self-destructive machine in some form or fashion. Okay, so are you saying that they would be shut down to save money or to save their lives? Um, well, I'm just wondering, like, why, if I had a coal plant running, why would I ever do anything with it other than just keep it running nonstop? No demand. Maintenance. Yes. And maintenance. Yeah, and either, either demand uh, scenarios or maintenance that's required, right? Um, mm. So, for instance, if you if you take the heat rate, and, and we'll do some simple math here. Okay, so if you take the heat rate of a modern combined cycle, very efficient power plant. And you take that heat rate and you multiply it by the price per MMBTU of natural gas. Mm-hmm. You have a pretty close estimation of that power plant's fuel cost per megawatt. So, for instance, if you take one, uh, let's say a GT Frame 24, which is a very specific power plant that if anyone's nerding out can go look up with a heat rate of around 7,000. And we'll just say natural gas is at a even $3 an MMBTU. That power plant is going to cost $21 a megawatt to run. So when you have power prices floating around the $20 mark, you're not going to run that unit unless it's over your at least your fuel cost. That's not even counting staffing, maintenance, or anything else. That's just your fuel cost. Got it. That makes sense, but I do kind of like the warm lakes for fishing that result in power plants running. Yeah, it's great. Take a take a you you know you got a big coal plant that's got a lake by it. Mm-hmm. Go uh, go dip uh, you know right out uh, outside the discharge. It'll be you know probably twenty degrees warmer. Well, so oh, yeah, there's yeah. like an ebb and flow then because you have the different types of machinery, including the windmills that are providing the electricity. So. When it's a really windy day, I'm assuming then maybe that's when they don't use as much of the natural gas and they go to whatever is the cheapest to run is what it would come down to. Right. And that's the way the ERCOT market works is the you're dispatched based off of what you bid into the market. So the lower price you bid into the market, the cheaper it is. Well, the wind, as you bring up, Darren, actually creates a very distortionary effect. And the reason why is because of the subsidies given to these wind farms. So wind farms in the state of Texas have the ability to bid into the market at a negative rate. So literally because of the tax subsidies, some of these wind farms can bid into the uh, into the market at a rate of up to, I've seen it as high as $40 a megawatt before they start losing money. So that means a large coal plant that can't just shut off is literally paying to the grid to put power on the grid, which obviously that's just insanity. That's not a free market. That's not, you know... Uh, it, you know, but, hey, I'll put my power on the grid for free. Sure, maybe, but don't make me pay to produce power in addition to running fuel and everything else. Right. So what's 
what, what's killing coal is the wind subsidies. And the reason why is because the wind in Texas generally is at its highest production at night, which is also when the load is the lowest. So these base plant, these base load coal plants go down to what's called low stable load. The minimum amount of power they can put out without being unstable and potentially causing an issue. Well, wind is at its highest production and they can bid in again. They get dispatched at, they have a competitive nature, right? Because they get dispatched at whatever the cheapest price is first, right? So they're going to bid negative as far down into their subsidy that they get as possible. And then the coal plants end up having to pay that subsidy. So because the coal plants can't turn off and turn back on like a combined cycle, um, that's really the issue that's killing coal plants. I, I, I would, so we covered a combined cycle and, you know, gave an example of $21 a megawatt. Um, there are coal plants in the state of Texas that are as cheap as $7 a megawatt uh, from a fuel cost standpoint. Um, so that's a dramatic difference, right? One of the really, to me, sad things about coal closures and when you're thinking about other economic impacts. So a natural gas plant has maybe 20 employees. Uh, a solar plant probably has zero employees um, that are dedicated 100% to it. There may be some floaters or some people who are there occasionally to do something. Uh, a wind farm generally has pretty much zero uh, employees dedicated to it. There may be a team that services it and so on. A battery site, same thing. Whereas a modern coal plant uh, would have probably between 150 and 200 employees. And then if the plant is serviced by a local mine, that's an additional close to a thousand employees right there. And these are high paying rural jobs that we're losing. So there's a knock on impact there. Well, which is the point, of course, for the politicians that go against the coal plants is because they want to shut those businesses down and they know what it's going to do to them when they give the subsidies to things like wind power, because it's all to do the same thing, which is to get rid of coal. And we're back to the whole global warming thing. Yeah. Well, it sounds and to me like the the biggest reason that we have issues with coal plants going down is because of these damn windmills, which we shouldn't have. And then uh, I guess the other thing to do would be to start building and selling access, private access by the coal plants to on demand crypto mining so if i mean it's stupid for them to be putting out power for free at night when they could be selling that power to on-demand data centers mining crypto yeah i mean that's a little more difficult than you might imagine and part of that is because of the interconnect agreements that uh occur. So when a new power plant is built and they're connecting into the grid and we go back to the grid not being deregulated, right? You have an interconnect agreement that has to happen there and there, there's some issues there. Um, we had shut down a plant and a crypto miner uh, outside of Austin and a crypto mm -hmm. miner wanted to come in and utilize that interconnect. And the, there were quite a few legal, even though the plant was shut down, there were a few legal uh, hoops that had to be gone through before that could even be considered. 
You know, another thing I want to put out there is people say, oh, the subsidy is just to get the initial install base done. And then after that, you know, the uh, the windmills are profitable. And, you know, after that subsidy is done, then that's great. Except what we see is power plants that were wind, wind and solar that were built very recently. Um, when that subsidy goes away or there's a major issue, they are walked away from. They're abandoned in place. Um, and the reason for that is because it's not profitable to put money back into them. There, I, I know of one solar farm in West Texas that is less than five years old. I think it's two and a half years old. And because the inverter manufacturer is no longer warranting the inverters, um, there is a chance that this large solar farm in West Texas before its lifespan is even reached will be closed because it's not economically feasible to continue to maintain the power plant with the failing inverters and the inverter company not honoring the warranty. Nice. How much of that is just the fact that this technology is not ready for prime time and being put into place? Well, it's a huge thing. Uh, and that, I mean, <laughs> the inverters are, are a crazy thing, right? So, you know, we can talk about the argument on DC versus AC and efficiencies and where DC becomes more efficient at high voltage. But all I can say is look at the high voltage DC lines in China and tell me you want that in your backyard. But regardless of that, um, these digital inverters are crazy. One, they're a freaking Linux box, man, right? They, they are literally running Linux on them and they're doing sine wave estimation by switching back and forth extremely rapidly. And they're a finicky device to begin with. And based off of the, and, and just to give a little bit of background, I've been involved in plant construction. I've been involved uh, with projects, both battery and solar from the very beginning, all the way through commercialization and operation. So um, I've got a little bit of background there. To say that the inverters are finicky is just an under, you know, they're, they have a high replacement rate and a high infant mortality rate. We have not had these types of digital inverters in place at this scale for long enough to know if that technology is really truly viable economically or not in long term so the I, reason we need the inverters is because all the solar panels uh currently that i'm aware of at least are producing dc not ac every yeah batteries and uh and solar technology the only solar technology that does there can produce ac directly is some of the thermo uh thermal solar uh plants where you're using mirrors to heat water oh, right to, right right to so those, those steam can do ac turbine. interesting yes okay yes yes but those yeah. seem like that's something I remember from the 80s. Yeah, um, everyone's gone uh, photovoltaic cell. Yeah. And the reason why is because the photovoltaic cell is easier engineering and it's just um, it, it's just a cookie cutter approach that can be used. The problem with the photovoltaic cell is there's a lot of rare earth minerals that you, you when you talk about environmental impact, there's a lot of things that go into the production of a photovoltaic cell. Then you have the fact that that photovoltaic cell stops, starts losing its power potential from the day one that it's installed um, all the way through its life. And by the time you're at 
quote unquote end of life for a modern commercial photovoltaic cell, you're producing about 20% of the power you originally were. So literally these power plants that are being commissioned at like, oh, we've got a 200 megawatt solar facility. Well, by the time that photovoltaic cell is at end of life, you know, you've got 20% of that. Mm. So it's something that um, has to be considered. And end of life is what, like 15 years? 15 to 20 years, depending on the manufacturer. Well, then you have to, one, add in the actual cost and then the environmental cost. So the concept that this is really a green solution is probably not the case. And as far as I can tell, a vast majority of these things are still being purchased from companies in China because we're not making them in the United States overall. I I know there's a few companies, but still, when it comes to the solar panels, it's mainly coming from China, isn't it? Well, yeah. And here's one thing I'll say about that. So the the solar panels and a lot of the things that were being purchased from China don't concern me as much as something like an inverter. And the reason why is that solar panel is a solid state piece of technology, right? It's not running an operating system. When you're talking about the inverters and some of this uh, that are being purchased for uh, America's power grid, um, it's running a proprietary Linux OS that's written in and from China. Um, as a cybersecurity professional and someone who does risk analysis, that was a discussion that I brought up through my legal and to the board and said, do we really want to do this? Right. Well, it's the same concept of do you want to use Huawei uh, in the 5G and all that? Because, again, you're letting a software be controlled by a foreign government, more or less. Yeah. And, you know, we we've seen cases where... Certain government agencies have conscripted uh, devices that were en route to a power plant from China and put it at a national lab with pretty much zero explanation. Um, Now, I will say that there's little to no evidence that there's a backdoor or something like that, you know, but it's just an. uh, But a high likelihood. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, man, (laughs) I'm I'm going to. You can never. You cannot prove a negative, right? I can't prove that something's not there. I can only prove that it is there. All you can say, though, is that running something on a Linux box that's connected to the Internet is a security risk. Well, and if the power, if the if the architect, the security architect at your power company is doing his job, then it will not be directly connected to the Internet. And I can tell you that the inverters in any architecture or design that I was involved with from a renewable standpoint, absolutely had no network connection to the, anything in the outside world. Well, that's good at least. Yeah. Yeah. That's something anyway, but uh, let's talk about the bird killers for a little bit here. <laughs> Your favorite, the windmills. My favorite. Yes. They, they're the things responsible for man-made climate change. Then they kill lots of birds. So I'm not a big fan. Well, why um, do we have so that many of them in Texas? What is what is so special here that we've managed to beat out California? You have land in a number of bird killers. We have land and we have wind and we have West Texas that is sparsely populated. And no one cares about the eyesore. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I will, I will say this, you know, <laughs> power plants in West Texas have had uh, another additional issue, and that's because of congestion. So literally on power lines and transmissions, you have the primary east-west corridor and the primary north-south corridor in Texas. So you have different kind of 
generation areas. So if you, anyone's out there and you go to the ERCOT website, you can kind of see what I'm talking about. And at any given time, you can see the literally the price per megawatt at each power plant on the ERCOT website. And pretty much any ISO, which stands for independent system operator, by the way. Um, but, you know, we've had to build out a lot of infrastructure for the power of the wind power in West Texas to get it over to the east. Um, it's caused lots of lots of issues. There's no doubt. Is this just a boondoggle that successful politicians managed to push through in Texas? <laughs> uh, what did we do before these things? We had more coal plants, right? Yeah. Yeah. So our mix was all in Texas, natural gas, because of our oil industry and everything else has always kind of led the way. Coal was a very close second. You know, Texas only has two nuclear facilities, South Texas Project and Comanche Peak. Um, you know, we, we've never been heavy on nuclear. We've had some oil and stuff like that, but a lot of the oil burning gas plant, uh, you know, power plants went away fairly early. Um, in fact, uh, for environmental reasons, some of the power plants that could, could burn either natural gas or a fuel oil mix because of environmental reasons stopped keeping on site reserves of fuel oil. So some of the natural gas power plants that went offline during URI are actually designed to be able to switch between natural gas and and or fuel oil. So if they had a shortage of natural gas, they could switch to an on-site reserve. And that has gone through the wayside because of some of the environmental issues. Are, are these plants, do they not have any on-site uh, like compressed gas or liquid gas? So the scale at which a natural gas power plant operates, unless you build it on top of a salt dome, you're not going to have enough storage for anything. The only the in fact, one of the subsidies that's being considered right now in the ERCOT market is a subsidy for power plants that can store fuel reserve fuel on site, which would basically be a subsidy for coal and nuclear. Mm -hmm. um, you know, coal power plants, though, e e some of the power plants that I have worked at um you know even if they're pushing off the pile number one that coal that's sitting there locally it coal spontaneously combusts right and loses btu value as it ages once it is exposed to oxygen so and once it's pulled out of the ground and exposed to oxygen uh, eventually that's going to turn into you know not a volatile piece anymore it's losing losing btu value right so when Right. And as you as you push off that coal pile, one, it can be a nasty mess. And if you're uh, a pulverized uh, coal uh, plant, which is the vast majority in the U.S., we have a couple fluidized beds, which are kind of the European style coal plants. But they're extremely expensive to operate. Um, you know, once you're trying to pulverize that coal, you're literally trying to crush it and put it into a talcum powder-like consistency to blow into the boiler. Well, when it's wet and everything else, it's just you're, you're making mud, and it becomes very hard to maintain a facility at that. That said, most coal sites can only store about 10, 7 to 10 days worth of fuel on site, so it's not a long-term proposition. Well, that's more than the gas plant store. Yeah, but, you know, if you go to a nuclear power plant, depending on how much acreage they have, they can easily store years, decades worth of fuel. Absolutely. Well, that that's certainly always been my preferred method of electrical generation. I, I really think that 
It's high well, time that America get over their fear of nuclear. Well, it's not just America. It's the world. But people fear what they don't understand. And, you know, well, people it's not talk the world because in France, uh, that's the predominant generation of electricity is is handled by nuclear. Yeah, but the French kind of. Sh- so the French did something good. They standardized, which makes it cheap, efficient and clean in some ways. But it also means that they are never going to build a nuclear power plant that differs from that design. And we've seen some of the modular reactor designs come up, some of the breeder reactor designs, mm-hmm. so, you know, various, various uh, intrinsically safe designs that um, really if they were allowed to do, if the NRC and other regulatory bodies across the world would let the industry go, could really compete. So some of these modular reactors, literally, you would never have an outage. You would only have a D-rate, right? So you would take a segment of the reactor out of service, work on it, and the power plant is now generating less power than it is capable of at peak load, but it's never offline, right? So that's a great idea. you know, uh, that said, nuclear power is expensive in the U.S. because of the regulatory uh, burden. And, and just between us, I will tell you this. If Vogel 3 and 4 do not get completed, if Southern Company doesn't make that project happen, you will never see another nuclear power plant built in the United States, uh, especially a light water reactor. It just won't happen. Um, that, that project has bankrupted uh, Westinghouse and caused lots of issues. Are, is anybody working on the thorium ones commercially in the U.S.? I know, obviously, we've got them in China. They've got them in Russia. But is there anything going on in the U.S.? Not for uh, only in theoretical research. Um, there, There is not a utility scale reactor being developed. The only re- utility scale reactors being built right now are Vogel 3 and 4. And the literally, the industry is holding their breath to see if those ever uh, come online. Uh, and if they don't, I, I think there's not going to be a company that takes the plunge to do that uh, anytime soon. You know, the, really, another technology that would have been uh, really cool had they been able to make it work. If you're interested, look up the Kemper County Project in Mississippi. Uh, so the Kemper County Project was a, a, a an attempt between GE and Southern Company to try and or Mississippi Power, which is part of Southern Company, to uh, get a a combined cycle unit to run off of a syn gas produced from locally mined lignite. So the idea was you'd have a gasifier that would take in the locally mined lignite, create a syn gas, and then the combined cycle could run off of that instead of natural gas, which would kind of give you the best of both worlds, right? Because now you can cycle the system on and off and you can choose whatever the cheapest fuel is. Is it Mm -hmm. natural gas or is it the locally mined lignite? And you'd have a bunch of jobs for the mine and everything else. But they could never get that gasifier to work at a 500 megawatt or greater scale. So as a result, they've pretty much abandoned it after billions of dollars of overruns of project costs. Well, and then there's, I think, something to be said for not trying to build bigger and bigger all the time either, because uh, the idea of a more compact nuclear uh, reactor is something that has gotten a lot of popularity and use in African countries. In fact, I had a relative that was selling those uh, back a uh, number of years um, that kind of stemmed out of the Russian submarine nuclear technologies. Uh, and then when the USSR collapsed, they had to figure out a way to make money. 
<laughs> the way you make money is you start building essentially submarine reactors on land and then selling them to other countries. Yeah, you know, one of the if, if we go back in history, one of my great laments is that Rick over cho- chose the light water reactor design. Mm-hmm. You know, the first nuclear power plant in the United in the world, uh, ERB one was a breeder reactor design. Yep. And had we stuck with something like that, we'd be in a far better place today. Uh, the light water reactor design has safety issues. Now that said, look at Fukushima. Fukushima is a old style light water reactor, Western design light water reactor. And we see the absolute worst case scenario. And despite what some people think, uh, Fukushima is a testament to reactor design and that things are really pretty safe. Yeah. You know, people, people think about Chernobyl. Chernobyl is absolutely the worst case scenario, right? And what people don't realize is out of all the predictions around Chernobyl and, you know, WHO thinking that oh, cancer rates and mu- uh, mutations are going to go through the roof. Well, it turns out, A, people are still living in the exclusion zone. People don't realize are. that, yeah. yeah, people don't realize that, uh, you know, Chernobyl was still an operating power plant up until relatively recently. Um, you know, uh, the WHO went in and found no statistical incre- increase in the rate of cancer or birth defects. Mm-hmm. I mean, in- people- increased risk of, uh, of alcohol consumption, though. Yeah, well, okay. Uh, I mean, yeah. So they have a thriving cybersecurity industry is what I just heard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Right. Well, yeah, it's all again, it's all marketing. What we get from the politicians in the news is, oh, well, we need these green new energies. We need to spend billions, if not trillions of dollars on windmills and solar panels. And there are crickets when you talk about nuclear energy, which seems to anybody that can do the math that would be the best choice. But of course, why isn't it? Why? I mean, why? In a world devoid of everything else, I mean, if you could try to get politics and everything out of it, why would any rational person choose wind and solar over nuclear at this point? Um, I wouldn't. Uh, I might choose coal, and that's because of its abundance. And coal can be done pretty damn clean. Mm-hmm. And really, really, the, the question is, is zero emissions the goal? And if it is, then really your only answer is nuclear. Um, you know, because, A, things can be done locally inside the country. We have enough uranium and everything else that the arrangement can be done here. We don't have to ship we don't have to have uh lithium mined in another country then shipped to china to be created in a battery then shipped to the u.s to be assembled into whatever right um there's a lot of footprint that happens to some of these green technologies before they ever get installed and that's never considered right um all that said you know nuclear is absolutely the greenest power technology we have today and people fret about, um, you know, nuclear waste. What are we going to do with nuclear waste? Well, number one, we can have breeder reactor designs or, you know, uh, other designs that can take that nuclear, that spent fuel rod from a light water reactor and utilize it on down. Um, so w- one of the things that I like to talk to people about is if you think of a fuel rod as a battery, a light water reactor is only capable of discharging that battery down to about 70% of its potential energy. Um, 
when you look at a breeder reactor design and some of the molten salt reactors and things like that that are intrinsically safe, you can take that battery meter on down to about 5%, right? So instead of tens of thousands of years of half-life, we can now say a thousand years of half-life at a much more manageable energy level. All that said, if we take all the nuclear waste in the world and put it on a football field, um, the last statistic I saw said it would be about a meter deep, right? So people underestimate when they hear these terms of thousands and thousands of tons of nuclear waste produced, they fail to realize how dense uranium and plutonium really are, right? That's not a lot of surface area. That's not a lot of volume of waste. Um, so, yeah. Well, not only that, you're talking about conventional nuclear, but we do have thorium. We have uh, molten Pebble salt reactor designs. technologies. Yep. Yeah. We have a lot of technologies that have literally now been around for 50 years plus that uh, were not subsidized and i'm going to use that word specifically because what really led the development of american nuclear industry and reactors was the need for uh military fissionable material weapons production was definitely part of it was the determining factor as to what types of plants were being built and I yeah. think what we ended up with is a scenario where uh, where the less efficient technologies were prioritized after more uh, rather than more efficient technologies, simply because they could be utilized for uh, weapons technology. Yeah, Rick, Rick over definitely. I mean, the, really, the decision point was around the nuclear submarine program and Admiral Rickover. And, I, you know, I've long joked that Rickover really ricked us over by uh, <laughs> making that decision. Um, there is no doubt that, you know, weapons grade material can be uh, more easily refined from spent fuel rods and things like that. Mm-hmm. Th- th- there are some items there, but it's not like the power plants are generating. Uh, military grade, you know, stuff right out the door. There's a refining process that has to occur as well. It's just kind of a step in that process. Um, and you could skip that step uh, and go straight to weapons grade material as well. It's just, you know, yeah, the idea well, of being able to use it as an intermediary step. The reason that we went to the moon step. was because we had leftover, uh, leftover uh, ICBMs, essentially, that could be utilized for non-military purposes now a lot of these technologies really led by military spec and then somebody tries to come up with another use for it well i I think you've got it somewhat backwards there you know the space program was used as a civilian development of technologies that then fed into the icbm program that's 100 percent yeah and we we see that in a lot in research and academia right um well, what do you mean fed into ICBMs? So, I mean, World War II, you've got, um, you know, you've got the V2 and things mm-hmm. like that. We, we Operation Paperclip, go in and snatch up a bunch of guys and feed them into our rocketry program. Oh, they well, were running towards us. We didn't have to snatch them. They were happy to get away from the Russians. This is true. Um, 
the but anyway, regardless, you know, we we, we uh, have certain people over here working on, you know, von Braun and so on, working on our uh, space program, mm-hmm. and you know, part of the reason why is because the military there there were several things at the time, but there 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 are some budgetary reasons why the NASA program will stood up in the way that it was, and that was not a purely military driven approach. Right. There's a reason why the space program existed outside of just a space rate, uh, a pissing contest, if you will, with Russia. Well, sure. But von Braun's work was originally, and even though he had ambitions of going to Mars, but most of his work was very much for the military. Immediately Agreed. after after World War II, when he uh, got transported to Alabama. Yeah. And, and, you know, NASA is not a purely civilian agency, right? So no. I guess it's kind of what I'm getting at, even well, though it's yeah. largely viewed as that. Yeah, but like the Atlas, the Redstone, the Titan, the Proton, these are all ICBMs that were then repurposed to use as NASA vehicles. Yes. <laughs> so that's what I'm saying. I'm going, that, I'm going oh. back further to like Mercury, right? And the developments that happened in the Mercury program that ended up in the Atlas. Um, so, yeah. Well, sure. But that was, um, that was the Redstone program. So Redstone preceded Mercury. But either way, we're getting way off topic and too nerdy <laughs> here. The point being is that I'm lamenting the fact that nuclear technology hadn't been uh maturing growing and expanding into allowing us to have what people in the 60s thought we would have which are you know county or city or neighborhood small little safe nuclear plants that would provide free unlimited power to all the surrounding communities yeah backyard nukes um and we the literally looking at life life magazine from the 60s you can find articles about this wonderful future in the 2000s right and 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 the sad thing is we have the technology we well we haven't built it but we have the theoretical knowledge to do that today very easily we've had it for a long Mm -hmm. time now and it's really just regulatory burden that prevents that from happening uh if you look at like comanche peak which was you know is the newest of the uh Texas nuke facilities and uh, the company that owns Comanche peaks up until recently had the permits for Comanche peak three and four. And the odds of those ever getting built is infinitesimally close to zero. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I I got a tour of Comanche peak a number of years back. That was, um, that was fun going through there. Uh, It's one other incidental piece of news i don't know if you're aware of is did you know that just this past couple of weeks can't remember exactly which day was uh george jetson's birthday yes yeah i, I saw that, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah yeah so he yeah. was he was officially born in the cartoon universe uh just uh this year a few weeks ago so i'm yeah. still waiting for those flying cars that go Man, taking me back to my childhood. You know? mm-hmm. yeah. To celebrate, we keep trying to get Gene a seat on the next rocket to Mars, but nobody. Yeah, does. that's a, for a different reason, though. <laughs> right? That's, that's true. That's true. You know, it's like, you know what? The, yeah, it's like all the energy stuff. Never look at why people are doing anything. Yeah. Well, I would say this: if I were a younger man and uh, didn't have kids, and 
I was offered a seat on a Mars mission, I would definitely take it. Yeah. Well, as a man, I was 114. I would still take it. <laughs> All right. Well, any questions for me, guys? Yeah. Have you had any interesting, wild, wacky, crazy experiences that uh, you can share with us in your years of working in security and power plants? Oh, man. Uh, I, uh, I, yeah, I can actually. I've got a couple incidents that, uh, have been cleared through a few legal departments. I'll tell you one, I got a call uh, from a power plant that said, Ben, oh my God, it's the big one. Um, The plant started on its own. What do you mean the plant started on its own? Well, we were all in the conference room and uh, the ISO called us and said, hey, why are you running? We don't need you right now. And this plant, by the way, for those who uh, might, know of the scenario is a peaker unit, which means it only comes on at extremely high demand. It doesn't run all the time at all. It's just there as kind of like an emergency backup. We need a little bit more power right now. So, uh, and it's a peaker that doesn't run very often, a handful of times a year. So it's not even manned 24 seven, but the, the people who run the unit happen to be there and all 10 of them were in a conference room at the same time when they got the call. So they know none of them started the unit. And they, uh, after the ISO called them, they walked out to the unit. And sure enough, it is online and running. Holy crap. So they shut everything down. And by the way, they start looking at the HMI, which is the computer that's used to control the power plant. And there was a bunch of stuff open on the screen. And they go, uh, okay, this is weird. Let's, uh, let's reboot the computer. So that, if, from an incident responder standpoint, that was I immediately started screaming at them. No, you shouldn't have done that. But um, anyway, long story short, the plant started on its own. Uh, the gas yard was closed. So literally it started up on the gas that was available from the gas yard to the unit in that pipeline, which is amazing to me. And what it turned out to be was a defective touchscreen that ended up hitting the start button and the confirmation button at the same time. Which and that, why that was that... a fun several days of my life wasted. Yeah. And why did the touchscreen <laughs> do that? I was like, how does that possibly happen? Well, because uh, an engineer didn't know how to read environmental specs on a touchscreen and put it in an environment that it wasn't suited. So it was outside of its humidity and temperature specs and just so happened to touch two geographic fire on two geographically different locations. So the confirmation button and the start button are not in the same spot. And how we ended up proving this out was literally by opening up MS Paint on the computer <laughs> and leaving it overnight and watching for the touches. And sure enough, they were there. Wow. So the failure was just two phantom touches of a screen. Yep. Nice. And the auto start sequence being able to be engaged. Oh, now, now, if that was a nuclear reactor, that could be, uh, <laughs> could be a lot well, of fun. Well, well, we ended up doing a full engineering review across an entire fleet of generation stations to make sure, A, there were none of those same touchscreens in the fleet, and then B, that any other touchscreens that were in the fleet were appropriately specced. Yeah, so next time somebody has a hot spot on their iPad, just think mm-hmm. about what it would be if your iPad was hooked up to a power plant. There's a exactly. reason why old technology might not be so bad. Yeah, like a key. Yes. 
Well, you, you know, and here's the thing, you know, we've seen so, and this will be one of the last things I'll get into, but we've seen a lot of pushes in Congress even to say, let's take the grid back to analog. Um, number one, that's not going to happen. Uh, for, first of all, we are way more reliable now than we ever have been. And part of that is because of technology. Two, there isn't enough manpower to go back to an analog uh, situation, right? We, we can't have, uh, people running out to, um, switch yards to manually engage breakers, uh, things like that from a safety standpoint and arc flash standpoint, you, you physically don't want to be the guy doing that if you don't have to be. Um, but regardless, what we can do is we can put in analog protections, right? So we can put in, uh, analog uh, overspeed governors on turbines and we can put in additional analog technologies on top of the digital technologies as a safety system, right? So the analog can, even if the digital gets owned and, you know, someone tries to overspeed a turbine. Well, if you have a, 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 a ball governor, a physical ball governor on there, you can't hack physics, right? You just can't. That's why I'm a big fan of, for cybersecurity reasons, in certain scenarios, data diodes, right? Because data is only flowing out. It's only going one way, and as long as you're not stupid with your architecture. And physics is a good control. There's no way around physics, at least not that I figured out yet. So, you know, I'm a fan of uh, layering on top of our digital systems some analog protections. I don't think that would be a bad idea. Well, that's that. great. You just need security. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and on that note, um, I know we've been uh, going for about an hour here since uh, we're going to let you get back to your actual job job. But I appreciate you coming in and spending the time with us and uh, clarifying some of these uh, mysteries about Texas power plants and power generation and sharing the yeah. fun story with us as well. One, one, one last note. Uh, anyone who's interested should read the market participant rules in ERCOT. I know that sounds like, oh my God, why would I want to do that? But when you realize that in, in most deregulated power markets, uh, you do not have to be a power generator, retailer, or transmission operator to be a market participant. So what that means is you've got hedge funds in there buying and reselling power as a commodity. And that just distorts the hell out of the yeah, market. Yeah, that sounds like it's all speculation and gambling. Yeah, buying future power and then selling it at a higher price when there's more demand because of a natural disaster. I don't know if there's a lower type of profiteering that I can think of. Well, all I can say is a lot of companies lost a lot of money. Um, you know, but somebody made money. Plenty of people made money. They sure did, and the natural gas companies were. Definitely one of the ones that made a lot of money. So anyway, just some things to look into, guys. Sounds good. Thanks, Ben. We all appreciate right. it. Thank you. all And thanks to all of you for listening and checking out this episode of Unrelenting. If you want more information, go to unrelenting.show or our locals community, which is unrelenting.locals.com. Until next time for Gene Nev I am Darren O'Neill. Thanks for listening.